Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. We've reached episode four of our American History series. And today, Sarah Churchwell is going to be telling us how women got the vote in America and how that did not rectify some of the other injustices of American democracy. In fact, as you'll hear, it made them worse. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. This Christmas, it's thought that counts. Give everyone you know a subscription to the LRB for just $19.99. And they'll throw in a free 2020 calendar featuring some of the best of their fantastic cover art. Find this special festive offer at lrb.me forward slash Christmas. Sarah, in the episode that we recorded about the impeachment of Andrew Johnson, you said that the 15th Amendment, which is a key part of Reconstruction, was deliberately crafted to exclude women. So it emancipated men of colour, but it was clear that women couldn't be included. Now, that presumably is partly because there was a move at that point to emancipate women too. This is not just a 20th century phenomenon. People were thinking after a great war that had been fought in the name of emancipation, that there were whole swathes of American society to whom it could apply. How strong was the move post the Civil War for women to get the vote? It was incredibly strong, but it was also part of what led to abolition, actually. I mean, white women were a very important part of the fight for abolition. Anybody who knows Harriet Beecher Stowe, Uncle Tom's Cabin, will recognize that as a kind of symbol of the most famous example of it. And Frederick Douglass was making common cause with feminism because they could all see that this was about universal suffrage and that we should all be allies with each other fighting for everyone for emancipation, for everyone to get full citizenship. What happened was that ultimately the political decision was made that the condition of slavery was just considerably more urgent for all of the obvious reasons. And a lot of white women agreed with that. In fact, you know, the the kind of mothers, if you like, of American feminism, uh, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, they actually had a disagreement about this. And Susan B. Anthony persuaded Stanton to say, look, we kind of need to sideline women's rights and go all in for abolition. And she did that partly on the belief, mistaken as it turned out, that then the Republicans would turn around and recognize the obvious claims for women as well. And then the Republican legislature would also grant rights to women. And she also thought that then black legislators would argue for rights to women. And that is not how it played out. So after the Civil War was when then Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony set out a stall for rights for women explicitly once they felt they actually felt they had been betrayed by the Republican cause. And then abolition starts to get its own momentum. But going up to the Civil War, they actually were working in tandem. And it's the 14th Amendment that actually explicitly says that it's only protecting men. And what it, what the 14th Amendment says is it only, it only has sanctions for states that deprive men of the vote, not women of the vote. One of the ironies, though, and we've discussed this before, irony may be an inadequate word to describe this. Essentially, the choice is as presented between, I mean, Douglas makes common cause, but it becomes a choice between emancipation for black men or for white women. Black women, no one is really making that case, even though, of course, there were as many women slaves, roughly, as men slaves. Mm -hmm. But following emancipation, that becomes the choice. And then the double irony is that the 14th and 15th Amendments, particularly the 15th, become dead letter in the South following the end of Reconstruction. So this 
decision to go essentially with the 15th becomes something which does not lead to civil rights, full voting rights. And yet alongside that, there is this attempt now to push again as we get towards the end of the 19th century, early 20th century for votes for women in the name of the 15th which is a kind of dead letter. Yeah, How the hell does that all work? <laughs> well, it doesn't work. Um, That's the answer. <laughs> which is the answer, right? It didn't work. So it's important to understand when we, because it, it may not make sense when we say that the 15th Amendment is a dead letter, like they ratified it, right? You know, except, first of all, they didn't. We have to bear in mind that the way that an amendment passes is that it has to pass Congress first, but then three quarters of the states have to also ratify it for it to come into national law. So you get this anomalous situation where you could be 25% of the states that hadn't ratified it, it would still be national law and you would be, in theory, obliged to follow it, but as a state, you hadn't ratified it. And that's actually what happens eventually, more so with the 19th Amendment than with the 15th Amendment. So the 19th Amendment was the one that did eventually give women the vote. But for example, the state of Georgia didn't ratify it until 1970, 50 years after it was ratified by three quarters of the states and therefore became a federal law. What they did with the 15th Amendment in order to make it a dead letter in the way that you're talking about was they basically stripped it of all of its power by passing a series of laws that worked against its explicit aims. So the 15th Amendment says that you can't deny someone the franchise on the basis of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Right. So then they say, OK, well, we're going to pass a raft of laws that deny them the franchise for other reasons, just not for race, class or previous condition of servitude. So that's when they pass the first so-called grandfather clauses, which is where that phrase comes from, which a lot of people don't realize when they said that uh, you could only vote if your grandfather had been able to vote. So we're not denying it on the basis of race. It's just, But if your grandfather couldn't vote, sorry, you can't vote. They passed literacy laws and then denied black people education. This was the point at which they said for the first time that felons would not be able to vote. And then they started arresting black people on any pretext whatsoever. And then they say, well, you're a felon. You can't vote, right? That was when they passed the poll tax, of course, was one of the big ones as well. So there would be an economic barrier. They would have white-only primaries because it didn't say anything about the primaries, right? So they found all of these workarounds to effectively deny black people people access to the vote to disfranchise them without actually flying in the face of the letter of the 15th Amendment, right? And I think it's a really important thing to understand. So that's why the 15th Amendment becomes dead in the water, because they're not being forced to follow it and they find all of these ways to get around it. But it's still the only legislation that women have to work on. And so what happened was then they start trying to build on those claims that were made, and indeed on the earlier claims in the Constitution for all men being created equal and things like that, um, to say there's a clear principle here for emancipation, and that's what they start to argue for. But what happens then, which is very unfortunate, both tactically, strategically, and morally, is that Stanton and Susan B. Anthony decided to throw in their lot with a white supremacist who they thought would help them make the argument. So basically, what happens in reality, although nobody set out to do this exact, well, some people set out to do this, but the people leading the cause for abolition didn't set out to do this, was that the the response was effectively divide and rule. And so they end up getting the rights of black people, pitting them against the rights of white women. And white women, as we have seen them do consistently in American history, voted for racial prerogatives rather than for gender equality. The 19th Amendment, which eventually, as you say, comes into law in 1920. So we've got two 50-year cycles here, 1870, the 15th to 1920, and then 1920 to 1970, when it actually becomes law everywhere. 
but it was deliberately the 19th modelled on the 15th. And you could say there are two possible ways that could go. So one of which is to say, this is to try and make the 15th real in some sense. Another is to say, look, if we model it on this thing that's effectively a dead letter, you don't need to worry so much about the 15th becoming real in the South because what we're doing is giving you the version for white women. And this is what the politics became about. For some people, there was this profound anxiety that if you emancipate women, if you enfranchise women in this sense, you would also then have to go back to the 15th and make that real too. And that, for a long time, was the barrier against. Absolutely. So, and, and it was explicitly the barrier against it, right? This may sound like we're kind of conspiracy theorizing or something and saying, oh, these things are related and, oh, everything's about race in America. But actually, it is. And it just is. And what happened is, particularly in the South, the white legislators very handily, from a historian's point of view, put all of this in writing and made speeches on exactly this basis that you can easily find in the newspapers. And I've actually been interested in this question for obvious reasons. And I've been going back and doing primary research and really looking at what these legislators said during the debates in 1919 over the ratification of the 19th Amendment. And basically, all over the Deep South, you have senators and governors, like prominent legislators across the South, giving speeches and sending telegrams and things and saying in so many words... We can't give all women the vote because the 19th Amendment was for universal suffrage women. They said we can't give all women the vote because then we can't very well give black women the vote and not give black men the vote. And if we get black men the vote, they'll vote us out. And that's literally what they said, right? So I just want to call up a couple of quotations because people might think I'm exaggerating. And uh, and they're quite extraordinary. Okay, so I'll do two, if, I'm, if I may. They're both short. One is from the governor of Louisiana who sent telegrams to his fellow governors in the South. And what he was urging was a workaround where he suggested that what they should do was instead of ever ratifying a universal amendment for all women's rights, that what they should do, and this was often the solution in the South, was to go with states' rights. And what he wanted to do was to basically trade it off with white Southern women and say, look, we'll give you guys the vote, but on a state-by-state basis. So stop agitating for this uh, constitutional amendment. On a state-by-state basis, we can easily give white women the vote, and then we can continue to deny black people the vote. And so in these telegrams that he sent uh, to his fellow white governors, he said, the 19th Amendment simply adds sex to the 15th Amendment, and that won't work. He says, quote, our southern states have been unanimously opposed to the 15th Amendment. And if we now ratify the 19th Amendment, we will be stopped from opposing the enactment of force bills by Congress in aid of Negro political equality, which will lead eventually to a struggle on their part for social and other equalities. So he says this will stop us. This will this will stop us from blocking the enforcement of the 15th Amendment. So we can't have it. And in the long run, that was a pretty good prediction. It was absolutely right. Exactly. This is an argument in Georgia that there was an unholy alliance between the advocates of Negro rule and the suffragists and that its very legality was held in doubt by some of our ablest lawyers. If you pass this 19th Amendment, you ratify the 15th and any Southerner knowing what that means is a traitor. Because what it means is that black people will get the vote and vote out white Southern Democrats. And that is what they had been trying successfully, stopping them from doing for 50 years. And yet the 19th did pass. So presumably part of the reason that it passed is people convinced themselves, again, correctly in the short term, though not over the long run, that it wouldn't lead to the 15th being enforced in the South. 
Was that because there was a clear understanding, almost an alliance, to effectively make this a white women enfranchisement? Exactly. So that's what happened. And in, everyone in understood that in practice, this would not lead to the enfranchisement of black women and therefore of black men yeah. and therefore. It to the end of white rule exactly, in the South. and that it didn't have to, right? That it it might in some places, but it didn't have to, and that they would be able to enact exactly the same kinds of blocks that they had done with the fifteenth, so that de jure all women would have the vote, but de facto it would only be white middle class women who would be allowed to exercise the franchise. And in fact, you get white women suffragists fighting this out in the South. I mean, Georgia was an interesting example because Georgia actually had the first woman senator to ever take a seat in U.S. Congress, Rebecca Felton. And it's tempting to look at her and she was this, she was a very prominent white suffragist. And so we might want to think, oh, great, you know, this feminist triumph, Rebecca Felton takes her seat for only one day, right? But it was a symbolic victory that they gave to her when a seat became vacant and then they put a man right where he belonged, you know, back in the seat. So uh, the problem with this story of Rebecca Felton being any kind of feminist heroine is that she was uh, herself a former slave owner. She was an avowed white supremacist, unapologetic. She was a defender of lynching. And she famously said, if it will save one white woman, I say lynch a thousand black men. And that is basically the logic that a great many white Southern women were using. What they did was argue for suffragism on the promise that they would not allow black women to gain the franchise as well, that they would not allow it to endanger white supremacy. And they were arguing against other white suffragists in the South who were saying we should go for universal suffrage. And they were saying, no, we need to maintain white supremacy at whatever cost. And that is why states like Georgia didn't ratify the 19th Amendment until 1970. Many of the Southern states didn't ratify it until that late. We should say this is not just African-American women who are being denied the franchise, but of course, Native American women as well, although it was supposed to be uh, universal suffrage. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The date that the 19th Amendment passed 1920 is in line with the enfranchisement of women in other places, including in the United Kingdom. And it comes after the First World War. Women were much more involved in the workforce. There was thought in various places to be now an overwhelming argument that to treat women as citizens in time of war and make demands of them outside of the home in what you might call public life, even if it doesn't include politics at this point, becomes very, very hard then to say it stops short of voting. But in Britain, there isn't the racial dimension there is in the United States. Is it the case, therefore, that that sort of social movement that tips the argument over the line after the First World War can be racialized because the involvement in public life has been racialized throughout all aspects of American life? So it's not like African-American women are playing a similar role to white women in the workforce so that the argument follows through. So it's actually still very – it is exceptional, the American case. So the timing is the same? Mm. 
this is a very, very different kind of enfranchisement movement than you get, say, in the United Kingdom. It, indeed, I think that has to be right. And again, you know, note that white women's freedom and franchise was purchased at the expense of women of color in more ways than one. And indeed, their ability to work in the factories during the First World War was also purchased at the cost of women of color because they were the ones caring for the children. So white women can get out of the home. So they can afford to go work. They can afford to go be in government. They can afford to do all of those things because they simply bring in black women to raise their children for them. And it's a and so that's part of the many structural ways in which white women purchased advantages at the expense uh, and privileges at the expense of black women. The politics of the passage of the 19th Amendment, how was it understood that it wasn't going to have the effects that was feared by people in the South? Because the Senate was able, until the second half, well, well into the second half of the 20th century, to block legislation that might affect southern states. Was that the reassurance, as it were, the fact that the Senate knew that it could, if it needed to, block the enforcement of the 15th, what allowed it to pass the 19th? I think that's the case. I mean, I can't say certainly that that is the case, but it seems to me like there's kind of no other way of understanding the way that events ultimately played out. And indeed, the way in which the pressure for the civil rights movement across the 20th century would grow and grow and the way that it would realign the political parties, the way, I mean, it really, the the rise of the civil rights movement from the 1920s into the 1970s. I mean, we think of it as something that takes hold in the 50s and 60s, but of course, it doesn't come out of nowhere. And that push in reaction to the rise of the KKK in the 20s, in reaction to the failure in real terms of advancing suffrage to black people via either the 15th or the 19th, and still you're in this condition of servitude, and still you're in this condition of socioeconomic oppression and and disfranchisement, that there's this understanding that these things have traded off against each other. And so there's going to have to be some kind of realignment and reckoning. And that took over the course of the 20th century for the political pressure to start to shift and for there to start to be a party that would actually speak for African-Americans to the extent that they do uh, at all. And obviously, plenty of African-Americans today would take me up on that rightly and say, which uh, which party would that be, Sarah? Which is, you know, also a fair question. But at least that Democrats are understood on some level to be speaking for the rights of black people, or we hope they are, and people of color. I'd also like to add, though, um, another thing about what happens in 1920 in America that is exceptional and important, because it looks like another anomalous thing that happens in America at this time, which is passed the same year. It's another amendment, which is passed in 1920, which is the 18th Amendment, which which is the Volstead Act, which is the one that brings in prohibition. And many people see this as this completely anomalous thing that happens in America, but it happens in exactly the same moment, and it's by no coincidence. So really, the way that I think of this, and obviously we're, we're doing a huge swathes of American history in 30 minutes, right? So this is obviously oversimplified, and I don't want to please, you know, spare, you, spare me your postcards about how this is oversimplified. But the basic gist of it is that in the 19th century, out of what was called the Second Great Awakening in the 1830s, the Christian revivalist movement, which led to a great moral upswing in America, was three great reform movements emerged out of that sense of needing to lead a better Christian life. One of those was abolition. One of those was women's suffrage. And the other was the temperance movement. And the three of them went very much in tandem. And they worked together in ways that I think our political conversations, because we're not interested in temperance, tend to leave that out of it. But it was a very, very important part of the debates that happened at the time. And we need to see temperance in two contexts. The first, in the context of the 19th Amendment, which is the most important and why it's no coincidence that it passed the same year as the 19th Amendment. 
The temperance movement was a feminist movement in very important ways because if you think about alcoholism as we now understand it, as a medical condition that needs, you know, treatment and that needs, but also as something that women had to deal with at a time when they themselves had no rights within marriage. They had no property rights. They had no legal rights. They had no redress against domestic violence. They had no redress against their husband drinking up all their wages. So poverty and domestic violence were major, major concerns for women. And they had nothing to push back against with the problem of alcoholism. So where there was no possibility of cure, they were fighting for prevention. And so they fought for prohibition as a feminist right, as a right to a domestic safe space, effectively. But then what happened, which also becomes relevant to all of the kind of social trends across the 19th and 20th century in America, which we haven't talked about enough in the context of really either impeachment or the 15th and 19th Amendments, is also the movement against immigration and the rise of nativism. So not racism as we would understand it today, white anti-black racism but more broadly, anti-immigration, xenophobic nativism, the idea that white Americans are superior Americans to all other groups of people. And of course, uh, drinking was very much associated with certain immigrant cultures, particularly Catholic cultures, who we were already suspicious of because we're nativist Protestants in this scenario, right? So we don't want these wine drinkers, these suspicious, and these whiskey drinkers from Ireland and these beer drinkers from Germany. And so it's also a way of criminalizing this suspicious foreign conduct. And that's how it managed to gain traction. So it largely begins as a feminist movement for some kind of redress against domestic violence and gains cultural traction out of nativist energies. And that's why that all happens at the same time, too. And it is extraordinary in a way, as you describe it, these three movements that went hand in hand, abolition, enfranchisement of women and temperance. And from our sensibilities, we would think that abolition and the enfranchisement of women would be the two that would go together and maybe temperance would fall away. But because of race, it's temperance and enfranchisement that go together and following through on abolition, that is giving the rights that were there in the letter of the law but aren't real in practice. That's what falls away. By the time we get to the 1960s, then civil rights and finally making real the promise of reconstruction after 100 years returns to the centre of American politics and of federal politics. By this point, the enfranchisement of women, as you say, it's not a done deal, but it is not just a letter of the law. It is a fact. It's a fact of American political life. Is it possible, is this too much of a twist, but is it possible to see that the 19th that was modelled on the 15th because the 15th wasn't going to become real then becomes the means by which the 15th can become real because it can then be modelled on the 19th? I mean, again, I, I don't think we can prove that, or at least I don't have the, the information that would enable me to prove that. It is neat, as you say, and it does feel intuitively as if that, yes, as if that is sort of how it played out, right? But really, I think that what happened was that it just became harder and harder to try to make the kinds of casuistical arguments the politicians were making in 1919, when they were like, well, maybe we can give it to you, but we're not going to give it to you. And maybe, okay, but if you hang on to it, don't give it to anybody else, you know, and just that became less and less practicable, more and more impossible. And people could see more clearly the alliances that they needed to build. And uh, so gradually through education, but we also need to remember in the broad international context that we're talking about the era after the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. We're talking about an era in which people are starting to talk and think about human rights in new and different ways. And all of those conversations are gaining traction in America and the United States, and to a certain extent, wants to lead the way on that. So it becomes harder and harder to say, oh, as the nation 
nation was able to do at the beginning. It's a nation in which all men are created equal except you and 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 you. And I don't mean you either, right? It just becomes harder and harder to do that. The enfranchisement of women, which gives women the vote, is part of a story which also includes, and you've touched on this, the other question, which is women holding representative offices, women in Congress hasn't happened yet. Women in the White House. I mean, it's an extraordinary part of this. And and may also not happen next time. We're Mm -hmm. in the middle of a process where it looks for familiar reasons to be harder for women than for men to run a campaign for national office. And it's incredibly slow. It's true in this country too. Women get the vote. One of the arguments that's made against it is that women getting the vote is going to lead to many more women in parliament. It's going to change. And it doesn't. It doesn't change the character of politics. Actually, the people who end up getting elected are the same kind of people. Why is it so much slower? I mean, you may not have an answer to this question, but (laughs) one of the things that the scaremongers say about the enfranchisement of all sorts of groups is it will change the character of politics. But representative politics has these deep barriers in place, which means actually the same kind of people still get elected. Middle-aged white men still. or actually, (laughs) Maybe septuagenarian white men, right? (laughs) It is one of the oddities of the story. Exactly. I'm just, you know, sort of those, I don't know if I can answer the question because I'm so busy deciding whether to laugh or cry, you know. Um, so look, in terms of why is it so difficult in America or, or you know, versus how it plays out in Britain, um, it's something I've given a lot of thought to as somebody, you know, who lives here and now has dual citizenship. And you're the expert on British politics, not me. But it, it, for me, the question is rather, given the parallels with American and British politics in so many ways, what is it about the British system that has enabled women to become prime minister twice? So that's another way of asking the question. And we should be clear, so Britain's had two women prime ministers, but getting women into the House of Commons yeah. has been as slow and tortuous a process process. Maybe not as getting women into the United States Senate, which is still seems which to be is, pretty hard. Yeah. But still, it's it was a real struggle. Absolutely. And now we're losing women uh, from politics because they are getting bullied out of office, in effect, because of death threats and threats to their family, and it's just not worth it. And so we're losing really talented women from parliament in Britain, which is indeed a worry, People, women getting intimidated out of the public sphere. And so I wonder, I would put it to you, is, isn't it partly about the differences between the ways in which leaders are chosen, that in a America, you have to get the whole damn country to vote for you. Would you ever have gotten the whole country to vote for Theresa May or for Margaret Thatcher in that sense through that process? The first first time. time First time round. I don't know. That because they become the leader of their party first and they only have to persuade their party and then they've got all of that structure working with them once that's happened. And then they get measured on the success or failure to a certain extent of their own politics and of their own platform. And again, I know this is an oversimplification, but they basically have to persuade a much smaller segment of a much smaller country to let them be leader and give them a shot. And then it can all start to build on that basis. Where in America, you have to win over the electoral colleges and effectively more than 50% of the voting population of a country of 325 million right now. So given then you're also talking about a country with these kinds of deep patriarchal and misogynistic structures and that those structures are legal and political and very real barriers, very real blocks to women getting access to any of these points of entry, it just seems to me that that's a much higher threshold for them to get over. But as I say, I put it to you. And I don't know either. (laughs) But when you look at, for instance, Elizabeth Warren's campaign, the other obvious difference between British and American politics is today, wasn't true 100 years ago, the length of the campaigns, the level of scrutiny, 
and as you say, in patriarchal and hierarchical societies, running for 18 months, as opposed to to win the leadership of the party for Margaret Thatcher, for Theresa May, it's a kind of pincer movement yeah, with th- that's what I'm 300. Yeah, exactly. MPs. It's strategic. And, you've and just even though get they're all right. men, yeah. I mean, I was just looking at the third volume of Charles Moore's biography of Margaret Thatcher. has got this extraordinary photo, one forgets, of her, one of her later cabinets. One woman in the middle, 25 men, identical white men, yeah. identical white men sitting around her. Yet she, she, you can do it if it's short and sharp and yeah. you've got a good campaign yeah, manager. absolutely. 18 months is a complete nightmare in a misogynist society. Absolutely. And it costs the earth. So it's a misogynistic, corrupt, capitalistic society where men have already got all the money, right? So for women to actually get enough money to get enough traction to run for 18 months, right? And that's why, so, you know, now we've got the billionaires, Bloomberg suddenly announcing that he's going to run and this kind of thing. And you just think, oh, okay. So it's just literally, you couldn't be crasser. The men who have all the power then keep leveraging that power and continuing the cycle that excludes everybody else. And yet, as we talked about in the earlier episode, Nancy Pelosi is leading on impeachment because that does fit the British model. You can get to be the leader of your party in the House with the sharp pincer campaign. Nancy Pelosi is not going to be elected president of the United States because of the kind of culture. She's not going to be elected president of the United States. Or someone like her. Although I would simply point out, because we mentioned in the impeachment episode that there's a clear line of succession in American politics. And should, hypothetically, the president be removed, the vice president is next in line. But should the vice president also be removed, the Speaker of the House is third in line. So it has not escaped the attention of very many people that if this bribery scandal with Trump were actually to pursue what many would view as its proper legal course, given the degree to which so many members of his administration are implicated in this bribery scheme and did know about it. None of us thinks it's going to happen in reality. But in principle, it would not be impossible for a President Pelosi to emerge from this process. I'm not saying I'm predicting that will happen. I do not think that is what will happen, but it could. In the next episode of American Histories, Gary Gerstel is going to take us through the history of immigration in America, and particularly the hidden history of Mexican deportation. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.